You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Chief of Neurology at William W. Backus Hospital. Alzheimer's disease is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. Joining us today on NeuroFrontiers is Dr. Bruce Miller, Professor of Neurology and Clinical Director of the Memory and Aging Center at the University of California at San Francisco. Dr. Miller, welcome to NeuroFrontiers. It's great to be here today, Tony. Many patients present to our offices with complaints of forgetfulness and this inherent fear that they're developing Alzheimer's disease. How do you approach these patients? Our whole field is changing a little bit with regards to what is conventional wisdom. I think uh, there was a time when we all believed that if people were concerned about their memory, the likelihood was pretty good that they didn't have a memory problem, that it was healthy aging or depression or something else. But I think we're realizing that more and more patients uh, have something to tell us. So I think we uh, believe that if someone is worried about their memory, they really do need a very comprehensive assessment that either determines that there is a memory problem or is reassuring that there is not one. Are there any clues that suggest the possibility of Alzheimer's disease early on when you see these patients? I think the severity of the deficit is a clue. Confirmation by family members that indeed this is really a problem. These are two very important factors and deciding whether something is serious or not. So I think we all forget the occasional uh, movie or interaction with someone or face or name of a person that we know. But I think if this becomes persistent, uh, severe, and something that people around the individual notice, we tend to take this much more seriously. In young people, do you find that multitasking or an inability to really concentrate because of doing too many things at one time plays a big role in their complaints? Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, many of us have, uh, and I put myself in this category, uh, unrealistic expectations about what the human brain can accomplish. So many of us in the workforce imagine that we can do hundreds of things. I think in many ways, the internet and emails made life even more complicated. And so it's not surprising that some of us have little lapses in remembering the 150 things that we might have accomplished in a day. Bruce, often patients come to our offices and relate their forgetfulness to a medical event, most notably cardiac surgery. Is there evidence that cardiac surgery can precipitate the onset of Alzheimer's disease? This is an area that is still, I think, under active investigation. And I think there are many different perspectives on this. I think a lot of the hard data, you know, suggests that when we look carefully at people who have had cardiac surgery come out without any significant stroke, that these individuals probably don't have a high risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. That's one perspective. Another perspective is that even anesthetic itself might be a potential risk for triggering memory disorder. So I think we have these two sort of extremes, you know, cardiac surgery is completely safe to the brain and is never a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease to the idea that even a anesthetic can be a trigger. So this is an area we need a lot more research on and smarter research, research that thinks about individuals before and after, uses biomarkers, functional imaging. It's an area that's very important to our society. When we treat patients who have Alzheimer's disease, we're often more involved with the families and other family members. And the question always comes up, will I also have Alzheimer's disease if mom or dad had it? 
How big a role does genetics play in this? Genetics is a very complicated related to Alzheimer's disease. And we know that about 2% of individuals with Alzheimer's disease have a very strong family history with what we call an autosomal dominant gene. You carry that gene, you will get Alzheimer's disease between the ages of 40 and 60. But that represents a small percentage of Alzheimer's disease. What is much more common are families where Alzheimer's seems to be a little bit more common. We think we understand at least one risk factor that is genetic for Alzheimer's disease, and it's a gene called apolipoprotein E. If you carry the E4 variant of this gene, if you carry two of them, one from your mom, one from your dad, you are 16 times more likely to get Alzheimer's disease than someone who carries the E3 gene. If you carry just one of those E4 genes, it increases your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's disease by about threefold. There is many genetic factors that increase susceptibility to Alzheimer's disease. The one we understand best, though, is the apolipoprotein E. Bruce, the mini mental status examination is frequently used as a screening tool for Alzheimer's disease by all medical professionals. When do you prefer doing more formalized neuropsychometric testing? I think the mini mental state is very good for someone who's got clear, easy to diagnose Alzheimer's disease, a very significant memory problem. And I think in those cases, the mini mental state will capture the deficit and be reasonably good for following the deficit. It's not very good for detecting mild memory problems. So if I see a high-functioning physician or lawyer who comes in to my office with complaints that their memory is not as good as it used to be, you know, I, I can pretty much rest assured that the mini-mental state, even if they have an early problem, will not capture the deficit. So those are the sorts of individuals, I think, that you really need much tougher memory testing, much tougher cognitive testing, and sometimes in conjunction with neuroimaging. What other diagnostic tools do you like to use in terms of neuroimaging, CSF markers, or even genetic testing? You know, I think we, like most other groups at this point, only recommend genetic testing in families where there looks like there is an autosomal dominant early onset gene. And, and again, that's fairly rare. We like neuropsych testing and a very comprehensive battery that takes us about an hour to do. The other imaging technique that we work with almost exclusively is MRI. And I think in the future, MRI will be increasingly used as an early marker for disease, for a way of detecting progression of Alzheimer's disease. So I think the future of MRI use in dementia is likely to increase, not decrease. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss new advancements in Alzheimer's disease is Dr. Bruce Miller, professor of neurology at the University of California at San Francisco and clinical director of the Memory and Aging Center at UCFS. Shifting gears a little bit, Dr. Miller, what do we know about preventing Alzheimer's disease? Do you recommend things like diet, supplements, exercise? I think there's a lot of excitement, and I think rightfully so, in this whole idea that how we live our lives may uh, influence the likelihood that we'll develop a cognitive disorder later in life. And I think increasingly we realize that cardiovascular risk factors are also potent risk factors for dementia, probably Alzheimer's disease. Increasingly, we focus individuals on making sure that they diminish cardiovascular risk, such as high cholesterol, hypertension. Exercise appears as a protective factor in 
preventing dementia later in life. So uh, these are things that I routinely focus on with individuals who come in early in the stages of Alzheimer's disease or people who ask me how they can prevent this. I think one of the areas that's more controversial is the whole area of mental stimulation. If we exercise our brain at age 60 with computer games or comprehensive cognitive games, will this protect us or improve our memory? I think these studies are still ongoing, but there's no doubt that staying mentally active and alert, having tight social networks, seem to be protective from dementia as well. Bruce, anticholinesterase treatments have been the basis for management thus far. When should these medications be started? Do you start them early on in the diagnosis? I do. I think that if I've made a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, uh, I believe that patients should be treated with a cholinesterase inhibitor. They uh, have shown efficacy from all the way from mild to severe Alzheimer's disease, so I tend to use cholinesterase inhibitors often throughout the course of the illness. Would you use them even in mild cognitive impairment? I don't. I don't think that the data on mild cognitive impairment is there. So I think if I've made a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, that means I'm not sure what the patient has. They seem to have subtle deficits, but not clearly an Alzheimer's process. In those individuals, I think the data does not suggest that a cholinesterase inhibitor is helpful. So I don't use them in MCI. Bruce, when should you use an NMDA antagonist like memantine? I think that the data is good on this as well, and we don't have uh, any uh, data supporting the early use of the NMD antagonist memantine, but it's pretty clear that in moderate to severe disease that the combination of a cholinesterase inhibitor and NMDA antagonist is better than placebo. I use the NMDA antagonist in conjunction with a cholinesterase inhibitor in moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. Do you ever use NMDA antagonists as monotherapy? I occasionally will, but again, only in patients with advanced disease. So I won't use the uh, NMDA antagonist early on because I think the data for this in fairly good clinical trials has been pretty negative. When meeting with families, how do you address the behavioral problems that we get into as Alzheimer's advances? This is a really important area. One of the things I always do is emphasize to the families that this is not their fault. This is not something that they have caused, and, and by the same token, it's really not something that the patient has caused. It's caused by very specific changes in the brain, and that these changes lead to the bad behaviors. I think reassurance on this is often very helpful to individuals who feel guilty about the misbehaviors and, and feel that in some way they're causing them. These are very difficult to manage. I think that increasingly we realize that the medicines that we try for these behaviors are not profoundly efficacious. And I think study after study has been negative thinking about these behaviors with the atypical antipsychotics, the anticonvulsants. So I think the medications that we have for these behaviors are very limited. I tend to focus on the environment, think a lot with the family about how to manage these behaviors and the environment that the patient is in, preventing the behaviors. Obviously, if a patient sleeps during the daytime, they're going to wake up at night. Encouraging things like sleep hygiene, exercise for the patient are probably as important as any medicine we can use. One of the questions that always comes up from medical practitioners is really, when should therapy be discontinued? When do you make that decision and how do you come to that decision? 
When someone has reached a hospice stage, clearly it's time to try to pull away medicines unless in some way they're diminishing pain or or, uh, diminishing agitation. So I, I think in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease, I often start to withdraw these medications. Similarly, when they're not working is a time to think about taking them away. I think a cholinesterase inhibitor might help a patient with mild Alzheimer's, but actually in the later stages, be increasing agitation. When things are not going well, it's always a good time to rethink the medications that the patient is on. Often think about, rather than adding new ones, think about withdrawing medications. So that's often my approach. When do you begin to restrict a patient's activities in terms of their careers or working at a regular basis when you have an early diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease? Yes, well, California's got, you know, very specific guidelines related to this. And I think when we make a diagnosis of dementia in our clinic, the motor vehicle department should be notified about the diagnosis. And I think often the motor vehicle department will determine whether or not the patient can continue to drive. This is a very hard area with families and patients. And a lot of times we hear from families that if we take away the driver's license or if we remove the individual from working in their office, that this will make them worse or make them suicidal or cause catastrophic consequences for the family and the patient. So I think it always is something that we talk with, negotiate with, think about with families about what is best for society, what is best for the individual. But sometimes we have to come down pretty hard in favor of the society. Someone's clearly dangerous in their work or in their use of a machine. What do you see as the future regarding diagnosis and treatment of Alzheimer's disease? I think we're moving very similar to the direction that cardiovascular diseases have been. We are increasingly going to be able to identify risk factors, people at risk for these degenerative diseases, give them therapies that are relatively non-toxic, that are preventative and delay the onset of the degenerative diseases of aging, whether they're Alzheimer's disease, vascular, Parkinson's related. We are very strongly as a field moving in the direction of prevention. I think the hope that in the next 10 years, we will have delayed the onset of these disorders by five to 10 years. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Bruce Miller, Clinical Director of the Memory and Aging Center at University of California in San Francisco. Bruce, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. It's been fun. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.